there's a vast variety of spiritual paths and practices in our world. And if you were to go and check in with people who were engaged in all these differing spiritual practices and ask them to describe for you what meditation was, you would probably hear an equally wide range of responses. One person might say to you that for them meditation is about devotion. Another person might say it is about surrender. One person might say to you, well, meditation is about concentration. Another will speak of insight, another connectedness, another renunciation, another purification. We're probably aware too, as we go through this experience here, that at different times meditation means very different things to us too. That at certain times meditation is for us about cultivating calmness. In another moment it's about letting go. In another moment it's about forgiveness or compassion. In another moment meditation is about discipline. The words that are used to describe what meditation is are all valid words. All describe perhaps very valid expectations of meditation. It is valid to come to this path with an inspiration for change, for transformation, with a genuine sense of seeking of searching, of a quest. And in any quest, we have some sense of vision of what is involved, what that quest means to us, what we seek for in it. So many of these words that we use that change with time and with experience are valid. But we need to be aware of to what degree the words that we use to describe meditation are not necessarily descriptions of meditation, but are more descriptions of what we want from meditation. We all, actually, I think, if we obviously lived in a place of not wanting total peace and bliss and clarity, um, you know, our retreats may be less regular. (laughs) We do come to this practice not only with seeking, but often too with wanting, consciously and unconsciously. What we seek for, what we want, is that what we feel to be missing or to be incomplete or to be unfulfilled in some way in our lives. And we look to find that both through meditation and in in meditation. At times the expectations that are created have the aspect of vision within them and have the aspect of investment, investing them in a particular form or practice as seen as a result of being engaged in a particular form or practice. The difficulty with expectation, the difficulty with it, is that so very often what happens, our experience of meditation in any moment begins to revolve around what we want or what we feel is missing. Now, you've probably noticed that in your experience here. You know, if you're agitated, you want calm. You've got a a kind of a mission here. This is what you want. This is what you feel to be missing. If you feel to be um, very, very kind of spacey and you want concentration, that is what your meditation is for you in that moment. 
The difficulty with, with that approach is that sometimes our wants and our words in that moment rather tend to make something static out of meditation. Meditation is seen as a practice or a form or an avenue of gaining or finding what we want. Now, this seems on one hand totally valid. Of course, you know, it's logical. You know, if you want to grow an apple tree, you plant apple seeds. You know, it seems totally valid to do this. On another level, I think it is important to appreciate how much our sense of mission, our sense of mission actually brings us into a path of experience. We should never underestimate the relentless desire of the mind to seek solidity and substantiality and predictability. Now this rather relentless desire for solidity is, of course, to some extent transferred to meditation. We see the inclination and the longing of the mind to define, to describe, to compartmentalize, to judge, to have images, to make all things tangible to us. This is where security is gained. And we have probably all experienced those moments of discomfort, at times anxiety, and at times panic, when we are faced with that which is intangible, that which we don't have a label for, and how desperate we are to find the right label for it, to describe it, to bury it in a way. This too we want to do to some extent, or we find the same inclination arising in our practice, making our meditation solid. This wanting and longing, even the most subtle form of wanting and longing, is translated into having a solidity of purpose and a solidity of object. And then we say, this is what meditation is. I know what it is. It is this path for this. This is the objective. Now, I use this word, the mind does this. I use this rather, perhaps inaccurately, perhaps too loosely. In a way, what our mind does is articulates or formulates or expresses the longing or the yearning of our belief in self. The mind is simply the vehicle for that expression. The mind is not some kind of, you know, lurking enemy in the background filled with nasty urges, you know, to make our world solid. But we see this craving of the self for solidity. And the only way that the I can actually be content in meditation is to make our meditation also solid, to make something definite, tangible, to make an object of meditation. Because when meditation has become an object with a purpose, clearly defined, with a goal, with a particular approach, then the I has a relationship. Then I can say, this is what I do. This is what I'm here for. This is what I'm looking for. This is what I'm practicing. This is what I'm developing. This is what I'm refining. This is what I'm getting rid of. Without that relationship, the self doesn't actually have any identity within meditation. And then it's only restless. Have you noticed how much better you feel when you know what you're doing? It actually makes things, you know, how much better we feel at times when we've got something to work on or something to resolve or a particular purpose in mind, you know, at times we almost light up, you know, aha, now I know, 
you know. I've got it now, I'm doing this. There is sometimes a great relief, it seems, and at times we say, aha, this is clarity. Sometimes it's clarity. And sometimes we just have a more clearly defined I and object within this experience. Now the moment we put a label upon meditation, our meditation, then it exists in relationship to me. Now your meditation is not somebody else's meditation. You know, what you are doing is not what somebody else is doing. You know, while you may be very busily refining concentration, you know, your neighbor is doing something totally different. Your relationship, your meditation exists in relationship to you. Your sense of what it is exists in relationship to your sense of purpose and at times to your sense of wanting and at times to your sense of what is missing within you and your meditation is then at times created to feel that sense of what is missing. Now, you know, please don't mistake me and think, you know, well, it's better to come in here purposeless and drift and space out and see what happens. You know, we all begin somewhere and our beginning point is knowing actually what we are not in touch with and what we need. But to see the subtlety of it on a moment-to-moment level. To see that when we put a label upon meditation, our meditation, place it within a category, give it an objective and a goal and a way to reach it, in a way we live in a sense, in a way that is a little bit contrary to living in a meditative spirit. Because actually... We are seeking solidity within something which is not solid. We are seeking to compartmentalize something which actually has no boundaries. I feel it's very important to perhaps explore and understand that the heart of the meditative path and the heart of the spiritual journey is essentially about freedom. It is about liberation. It is about enlightenment. Everything that we do in terms of image, in terms of model, or in terms of compartmentalizing, in a way actually restricts that quality of freedom. Meditation or meditative spirit actually has very little to do with anything, any of the words that we use. At times those words are useful, they inspire us, they direct us, they ground us. But meditation in its truest sense cannot be placed within the boundaries of those words and their associations. I would like to suggest that meditation is actually not an experience. To follow the path of experience is actually to follow the path of limitation and restriction. We all know, I've seen time and time again here, the nature of experience. They have beginnings, they have endings. They are made to happen by someone or they happen to someone. Limitation and restriction is actually the nature of all experience. To begin to seek for any particular kind of experience in meditation is really not in accord with cultivating a spirit of freedom. In a way, it nurtures a spirit of limitation because look what happens within that pursuit. We want to recover an experience that has ended and gone by. We want to repeat an experience that has ended in the future. We want to make something happen in a particular way. And we all, of course, tend to have hierarchies within our evaluation of experience about what is good and what is not good. 
to make an experience happen or to get rid of one? What is this activity in service of? Who is satisfied? Who is actually satisfied by experience? In a way, it is the meditator who is satisfied. I feel it actually takes a very radical leap in consciousness to be willing to open our hearts to being, to seeing, to actually losing interest in experience. It is a leap in consciousness which is about having a passion for freedom. And it requires a leap because all that the meditator knows and all that the I knows is actually the realm of experience. One of the most pressing and primary interests in our lives, I think, is learning how to replace the unpleasant experience with the pleasant experience. If you see much of our involvements and our pursuits and our engagements, and actually much of the busyness that we experience in our minds, much of the busyness, what would you do if you weren't trying to replace an unpleasant experience with a pleasant one or to maintain a pleasant experience? How much would you have to do? Well, actually, there wouldn't be that much to do in the moment. There actually wouldn't be that much to do. But it is a pressing experience in our lives. Now we see that in meditation, we seem to be introduced perhaps to a realm of experience which is somewhat new to us, somewhat unknown to us, and we like it. We find there are experiences of calmness and experiences of serenity, experiences of stillness. And can you sense the creeping tendrils of grasping? This is still experience. This is still experience. And it requires, actually, a great maturity of insight to be willing to relinquish all forms of clinging to experience, to explore what it means to live in a meditative spirit, to explore what it means to live in a spirit of freedom. That is actually what we are here for. Now, this spirit of freedom is not something that is confined to sitting on a meditation cushion. It is not confined to a particular place or a particular time or a particular content in consciousness. Insight is not geographical. Freedom is not geographical. To truly live in a spirit of freedom every moment of our lives, to live in a way which honors that possibility within us is actually a great challenge. It's a great challenge because there is, at times, a very subtle, at times, a very gross level of addiction to the realm of experience. At times, we're unwilling to re uh, recognize the limitations of experience. We're unwilling to recognize their endings and their conditioned nature. And so it is difficult to relinquish those experiences. We want to be able to measure our journey. We want to be able to measure our path. And it seems that times the only way that we are actually able to measure ourselves is through compartmentalizing every moment into the area of an experience. We see how pressing this need to measure is in meditation. How often we think in terms of good and bad, good and bad sittings. Everyone knows there's no such thing as a good or a bad sitting. Everyone knows that. Nod wisely. 
Nod wisely, you all know that. Secretly, there is an underlying belief system that there is indeed such a thing as a good and a bad sitting, and we know exactly what the distinctions are. <laughs> we like to think of our, or find ourselves thinking of our experiences in terms of better or worse. Have you renounced comparison? We say we are more concentrated or less concentrated. We are more restless than I was yesterday. I'm more content than I was yesterday. We see this evaluator that lives within us, seeking security, seeking measurement through labels and judgments. There is something very important to understand in that process how our judgments of our experience correspondingly correspond to our judgments of ourselves. If there wasn't that link between judgment of experience and judgment of self, actually there would be no struggle, nor would there be any reliance upon experience. But we see this link that exists. I have very rarely met people who say, you know, in groups or in interviews, you know, my meditation is so terrible, it's the pits, it's wretched, it's absolutely a disaster, but I'm terrific. <laughs> no, we don't generally say that. This is equanimity when we say that. More often there comes very prevalently the feeling that if I have a wretched meditation, then it surely implies that I am a wretched meditator. This does touch other areas of our lives. And we see the desire, because of that description that is rooted in the judgment of experience and the judgment of self that goes with it, we see the desire to jump from wretchedness to that which is more flattering to excellence, to that which is praiseworthy, that which is good. The judgment of content is the judgment of self. This is such a wonderful teaching. If we can see that so clearly, that the judgment of content is the judgment of self, because self and content are tied together. You cannot judge one without judging the other. You cannot believe in the judgment of one without believing in the judgment of the other. Now, if that judgment wasn't taking place, or that belief in that judgment wasn't taking place, I wonder if you have a sense of how different your very sense of this moment might be. How very different your way of accommodating, of being present in this moment might actually be. When we, what we are seeing in that relationship between the judgment of content and the judgment of self is, of course, the marriage the interdependence of subject and object, that they cannot be separated. The world of objects is the world of self. The way they are seen, the way they are perceived. This is a most wonderful teaching, if we can learn it. We have certain habits about judgment, about commentary, about trying to create dichotomies and hierarchies and prejudice in meditation and in many things in our lives. And I think we must see that it is only as long as we are caught in our investment in our judges, judgments that that is the only time when we are equally caught in ideas of progress and failure, of depth and superficiality, of worthiness and unworthiness, of better and worse. What do these words actually say about anything at all? 
Do they have anything at all to do with freedom? Or are they simply an attempt to satisfy the meditator and to satisfy the I? They have much to do with self-image. Much to do with self-image. But then when we see that, I think we find ourselves asking, well, is this really what we come to the spiritual path for? Are we really here to kind of refine and polish our self-image? Do we want to leave a retreat feeling a more polished personality with decreased bad karma and increased merit? <laughs> to have a self that we feel better about. I mean, you know, if you've got a really crummy sense of self, you know, this doesn't seem like such a bad thing. But to be aware that any judgment about the self that is invested in, any self-image, is subject to the conditioning of all the phenomena in our worlds and in our minds. We are so easily hooked into judgments and they give this sense of continuity to self. We think, well, I used to be like this. I used to be a certain kind of person. Now I'm a little bit better. And I hope that in the future I will be better still. Not only have we compartmentalized this moment, but we are bound in time. And we see this kind of progressive way of change. We don't actually appreciate the power that awareness has to neutralize all conditioning. Do you know it doesn't matter how terrible your past has been. It doesn't matter how many mistakes we have made in our lives. It doesn't matter how many times we have blown it. We appreciate how forgiving awareness is. That awareness has the power to neutralize conditioning. It's not a question of erasing it, making it look better, you know, having a better form of conditioning. You've seen that. Awareness neutralizes conditioning. This is its most intrinsic power. You know, you, you can check that out in your experience here. You know, sometimes you've had thoughts come up about the past or about yourself, you know, which have carried some charge. And you notice how in mo one moment they just bowl you over. You know, it seems like you're just assaulted by them, you're totally bought into them, you know, you feel hopeless, you, you think about the past, you know, you find blame and causes. If you notice that in another moment, those very same thoughts can arise and rest within a great spaciousness. The content of the thoughts hasn't changed. The relationship has the connection, the presence of that quality of seeing is available. It neutralizes conditioning. What would happen if we can be present in a way, learning to rest within that spaciousness? And we hear the words arising in our consciousness, the words that describe ourselves, the words that describe the contents of that moment, the goods and the bads, the terrible and the attractive. What would happen if we were able to just be still with them and just allow them to flow through the consciousness just as we allow the wind to be present the birds to sing. What would happen if there was no hook to those words, no idea about progress or regression, no idea about good or bad meditations, no idea about what should be happening, where we are just are seeing in that moment? Where would we rest if we did not rest within our judgments or our ideas or our conclusions about anything at all?
because we see when we are hooked into our judgments and our images, then the next step is conclusion. Have you noticed the formation of an image? The formation of a belief about who you are? Notice how a conclusion about who you are is formed? Hooked into a judgment, subscribed to, believed in, invested in, associated with. We have a conclusion about who we are, about who others are. All of our relationship to the moment and relationship to the world in that moment is rooted and born of that conclusion. Then we have a sense of what I need to do or what I need to get rid of. If you've convinced yourself, you know you're a failure, your mission in life is pretty clear. What you have to get rid of, what you have to do, how you have to react. You know, if you've convinced yourself that you are inadequate, what does that do to your response to the world, to your response to other people? If you have accepted the belief in powerlessness or hopelessness, what is your relationship to the world in that moment? Can you see the way in which our world is conditioned by our self-image and by our acceptance of the solidity of that? Is that necessary? Is it really necessary? Or in doing that, are we always working within the realm of what is limited and not exploring what is unknown? There is no experience in meditation, no spiritual image that can in any way be a measure of freedom. Insight cannot be measured. This journey is not a path of improvement, of getting better. It is a teaching that asks us to look where we are right now, what is before us, what is around us, what is within us, and to ask ourselves in this moment, where do we actually live in a spirit of freedom? And where do we live in a spirit of limitation? If we could take one single question from this retreat, I think that would be the most important one. To look at this question, to make it a pressing interest in our lives, in our moment, requires a great deal of courage. It means, in a way, not denying, not rejecting, but not being preoccupied with all of those very convincing images, all of those very convincing beliefs, which create so much busyness in our lives. Have you ever noticed how much of our mythology, how many of our fairy tales really revolve around this whole question of kind of revelation, discovery of what is true? You know, the frog is actually discovered as a prince. You know, the the, the kitchen maid, you know, the camouflage is ripped away, she's a princess. You know, how much... So much of our mythology is about this emergence or understanding of what is true within ourselves. In a way, that is what we do here. We question what is false. We question what is true. Not in order to be a princess, not in order to be a prince, not in order to be a heroine, not in order to be a hero, but in order to be free. It's that simple, really, this path. The problem with experience is we become very addicted to them. We become very addicted to certain kinds. We want to continue experiences that are flattering, that are pleasant to us. This is the source of addiction, the fact that they are flattering to self-image. Our other problem with experience is their loss. How many times we despair over the experience we, experiences we have lost. Peace suddenly is sunk into confusion. From harmony, we suddenly find ourselves in negativity. A moment of connectedness dissolves into a moment of separation. We despair at times over this. It is a major teaching, and it's a hard lesson to learn. Because in the loss of experience, the experience which is flattering or pleasant, 
we feel that we lose an integral part of ourselves. This is what the despair is about. We feel we have lost an integral part of ourselves. So we begin the, to attempt to retrieve or pursue that experience. This is a very imprisoned way of living. Imprisoned by what is gone by. Imprisoned in our desire to pursue and retrieve. It means living in a state of hunger and wanting. And there is not a great sense of freedom or wakefulness in that. There is always the right time, actually, to learn the wisdom of letting go. You know, sometimes people come into retreats and on the very first day, they're worrying about leaving the retreat, thinking, how am I going to maintain this? Now you might find you've considered that question <laughs> yourself. How am I going to maintain this? Well, I would ask you, what are you trying to maintain? What are you really trying to maintain? Do you really want to go through life with a Zafu strapped to your behind? <laughs> This is not what I would call living in a meditative spirit. <laughs> what are we trying to maintain at times? What we fear we can lose. Does insight need maintaining? Does insight need maintaining? Can we lose insight? Sometimes people leave retreats and they feel that they lose their insights on the Mass Pike or <laughs> the Logan Airport or all these places, you know, they think, I was so happy a few hours ago, I was so peaceful and I've lost it and it's gone and everything's fallen apart. What have we lost? I think this is a very important question. What do we actually lose? Now, it doesn't strike me as that you can lose insight. I don't think so. It is not insight that is lost. What is actually lost, to some extent, is a passion for wakefulness and a passion for freedom. When we take the time to be still here and devote ourselves to being present, devote ourselves to being awake, to just taking care of this moment, there are remarkable changes that can happen in a short period of time. We can have moments and glimpses of profound calmness and connectedness and love and compassion and joy, and there is such a sense of coming home within that. There's very few complaints, you know, very few people come to groups, you know, it's a terrible day of compassion today and it's been really miserable, I'm suffering with this peace all day. That's, you know, that's not what we hear. It's not what we hear. There is that sense of something very authentic and very true and very much home within those openings. And what those moments do is they really reawaken or awaken for the first time in us even a real passion for being awake, because this it w is what it means. We see there is less suffering, there is greater joy, there is less conflict, there is greater connectedness. It awakens that passion for freedom, for sensitivity. That is most often, that passion, that connection, that devotion, is most often what we lose touch with and most important for us to nurture and to nourish. Now it is not necessarily just a random experience or automatic that we lose that sense of passion. There are factors that contribute to it. One of the factors is the addiction to pleasure. This is actually a primary factor in struggle in our lives, is the addiction to pleasure. We mustn't ignore its power. Pleasure is represented to us in lots of things, 
through lots of things. Pleasure is equated with safety, with identity, with control. Pleasure is the lifeblood of the self. It's not to imply that it's better to pursue pain, but to appreciate the effects of this addiction to pleasure, to see the way in which the sense of I thrives upon, craves for, and rests within this addiction. It's very easy to dedicate our lives to the pursuit of pleasure, equally being a casualty of the unpleasant. Pleasure supports the self, the unpleasant apparently threatens the self. Pleasure, in that addiction, we become lost in dualities and hierarchies. Lost in a world of allies and opponents. What are the allies? At times they are that which seems to offer us the support of I. What are the opponents? That which challenges or threatens our sense of self through depriving us of identity and control and pleasure. To live in a world of allies and opponents, we are always on edge. There is always attention, not attention, a tension. There is always a tension there. Because we see, first of all, we can't control our allies and opponents. At times our opponents pop up when we least expect them. Our allies are not there when we most need them. There's a tremendous insecurity in living in a world which is divided into allies and opponents, where we are always threatened and busy, busy avoiding our opponents and contacting our allies. It is difficult to live in a spirit of freedom when we are caught in the pursuit, avoidance, tension. It is hard to see emptiness and to understand emptiness when we have invested our world with the power to be an ally or an opponent. It is difficult to be free when we always feel threatened or when we are captivated. I'd like to read you something from Chang Su. If a person is crossing a river and an empty boat collides with their own skiff, even though they be a very bad-tempered person, they will not become very angry. But if they were to see a person in the other boat, they will shout at them to steer clear. And if the shout is not heard, they will shout again and yet again and begin cursing, all because there is somebody in the boat. Yet if the boat were empty, they would not be shouting and not angry. If you can empty your own boat crossing the river of the world, no one will oppose you and no one will seek to harm you. So what we do here is we learn to stop shouting. We learn to stop shouting at the world and we learn to stop shouting at ourselves. It is a teaching of learning how to allow, how to trust, how to be at home in awareness, how to appreciate the spaciousness and the vastness of awareness that embraces the arising and passing of every phenomena within our world, within our universe. It is a radical leap of trust to explore this quality of allowing. So often we think of our home only in those areas of being able to say, I am, I have, I need, I will become. These are not our homes. These are like empty shells we try to inhabit, created through beliefs, created through grasping. It is so important to appreciate the power of seeing, the discovery of that immense freedom. The only thing it is important for us to know is not knowing. The only thing it's important for us to dwell upon is non-dwelling. The only thing it's important for us to cherish is non-grasping. There's a great opening. Learning how to live in a meditative spirit 
It has to do with our willingness to let go, to be unconditional in this moment, knowing that nothing that is truly significant can ever be lost. The Buddha used the word akinchana to describe this spirit. Akinchana translated means one who wants nothing, one who grasps hold of nothing, one who becomes nothing, one who rejects nothing, and one who is nothing. Initially, this seems like a lot of nothings. <laughs> what is left? What is there? When we take away becoming and grasping and describing and wanting and needing to see that this liberates all things. There is not a great hole that is left. This is our fear. That in letting go we will face some terrible vacuum, some terrible black hole. It is not a great hole that is revealed to us, but a profound and clear awareness and seeing and trust. Another factor I think that is really needs to be considered in really looking at it, what it means to live in a meditative spirit is the factor of habit. And in habit I just don't mean the habit of our routines, the habit of our order, or the structure of our days that satisfies control and predictability. There's another level of habit which is about images about the world, about other people, about yourself. How sometimes it just seems to be easier to see an image than to see a new. Sometimes it seems easier to accept an image than to understand with freshness and innocence. There is another level of habit which is far more lethal and this is the habit of limitation. This is the habit of believing in limitation, the habit of assuming the disguise and the camouflage of limitation, the habit that is exper expressed in our self-definitions when we say, I am like this and believe it to be so, when we foresee that I will always be like this and believe it to be so, the habit of assumption in which we describe ourselves by personality, by mind, by body, by appearance, or by performance, and say, this is who I am. This is the habit of limitation. The words that we use to describe our sense of impossibility, when we say, I can't, that this is not possible for me, Later, when we postpone being awake, this is the lethal habit of limitation. Accepting assumption to be truth, accepting image to be truth, accepting belief system to be truth, accepting conclusions to be truth. Sometimes we're not aware that we have those habits, but we see them arise here when we try to distance ourselves from things, when we close down, when we numb out, when we space out, in those moments often we say, I believe and I can't. It is a habit. It's a habit. A retreat is actually an invitation to let go of that habit. Always, every moment in our lives is an invitation to let go of that habit. To open to what we do not know to question assumptions, to explore possibility. Habit of limitation is practiced through time and given solidity through clinging. We describe, it begins with personal history. We say, I used to be this and therefore I am. Therefore I am. Every time we can say the words I am and have an answer, it is time to pause and to question. I feel that sometimes to understand who we are, we have to look at what we cannot make an object of.
Look at what you cannot make an object of. Then we have, I think, a very profound understanding of who we are. What we do here is many things. We cultivate calmness, we cultivate clarity, we nurture ourselves, we learn how to care for ourselves, we learn how to connect, we learn what is possible for us. Mostly we are here to nurture that passion for wakefulness. There is a difference between passion and intensity. Intensity is about future, it's about arriving somewhere, it's about destinations, it's about goals, it's about self-judgment. Intensity is about reaching somewhere and something that is not already present. Passion has to do with now. It has to do with the present moment, to how wholeheartedly we listen, how wholeheartedly we feel, how wholeheartedly we open how much we love and honor this present moment, how much we love and honor wakefulness above all else. Because to care for and to nurture that passion for wakefulness is also to love and to treasure freedom. And we begin to really understand that it's not a destination, that it's not about arriving somewhere, that it is to do with right now. May all beings live with wakefulness. May all beings deepen in wisdom. May all beings abide in awareness. We have just a few moments quietly together. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.